Big Finish presents Doctor Who Short Trips. Downward Spiral by Alan Flanagan. Read by Sarah Sutton. a hard thing hanging on to your sanity when you're on your own when you're millions of miles from home when you're in zero gravity everything becomes unmoored so I suppose what I'm trying to say is listen carefully I know it might seem like you're losing your grip sometimes but listen carefully I'm about to tell you a story It started, well, I suppose it started long after when it happened, as these things tend to happen when you're travelling with a man who can't tell yesterday from his left elbow, on a very normal day in the TARDIS. Somehow the Doctor and I were shouting at each other, which isn't like us at all, to raise our voices, to exchange harsh words. But cabin fever can get the best of any of us. I was firmly, and I thought quite reasonably, requesting that we visit the Crave Symposium on the Ralthusian Falls. I'd read about it. An annual, or whatever annual amounts to on a planet that orbits a binary star system, meeting of the greatest minds in the region. The reconstituted consciousness of the Earth psychiatrist Sigmund Freud would be delivering a lecture on the structure of the mind. The Doctor, on the other hand, well, he used a lot of long and complicated words to get his point across, but in essence, he was arguing we visit a planet formed entirely of bouncy castles. I was about to win the argument, I'm sure of it, with an expertly constructed retort about the id, the ego and the superego, when a ringing sound started pouring from the console, and the TARDIS shook. The doctor glanced at the readings, and with a high-pitched roar approaching glee, he announced, Distress signal! At this point, the doctor banged three buttons in succession, breaking one of them. The Ventici 9, a medical transport ship, was sending a distress call from the year 2155. It was somewhere between Earth and Venus, floating aimlessly, and... There was a voice message. The words flowed from 2155 to the TARDIS like poison. Engines down. Drifting off course. Crew not to be trusted. I caught the doctor's eye. Not a normal distress call. But still he smiled, punched a final button with his elbow. Sometimes I think he just does these things for show. And the TARDIS juddered. I found myself on the floor. The doctor too. The ship's walls seemed to buckle, or it certainly sounded like it. Like it was trying to get somewhere, but the somewhere had different ideas entirely. A screech, a bang, a dash of smoke, and we ground to a halt. Not a normal TARDIS journey. I rubbed my ankle, and the doctor leapt to his feet. He flung open the doors and exited, with me limping after him. I stepped outside and, well actually stepped is the wrong word, 
because my foot didn't touch the ground. It sort of hovered, and I fell forward, and then I sort of hovered, and the doctor announced, Watch out, Nyssa, no gravity. We were in a tiny room, sheer white, walls covered with an endless series of wires and interfaces, and was that a tube of peanut butter floating by? The zero room flashed through my mind, but this was much more discombobulated. There was a single porthole, too, through which I could make out the stars. The doctor, who was already practising his best zero-gravity pirouette, exclaimed that whatever ship we were on, it wasn't the Ventici 9. The technology was far too primitive. As I struggled to adapt to my new surroundings and the sense that I was quickly losing track of what was up and down, a woman floated into the doorway. You. People you said. People, how are you? How are you people? You struck me as sturdy, with thick red hair tied back in a tight, and in the circumstances quite necessary, ponytail. Approaching forty, with a scar on your left cheek that seemed to dance in and out of light and shadow as you bobbed in the doorway. A name tag stitched to your dark navy uniform said, S. Mayhew. The doctor took your hand. Pleased to meet you, Miss Mayhew. You grasped his hand firmly, like you didn't want to let go. Siobhan, you replied. How did you... And the doctor began his explanation about the TARDIS, and time and space, and the wonders of the universe, and if there might be a cup of tea in the offing. You seem to be taking it well. After all, a big blue box appeared to be just as likely an explanation as any for how one would be boarded in the blank expanse of space. But as he talked, I was more concerned with one of the monitors tucked away in the corner. It was showing the date. 21st of June, 2055. We'd missed our target by a century. I informed the doctor, who politely shook your hand once more. Lovely to meet you. Apologies for the fright. Must be off. You clouded over. Disappointment? As myself and the doctor oriented ourselves and pushed back towards the TARDIS, only to have the door slam in our faces. The doctor tried his key. Nothing. Banged on it. Nothing. Launched a kick that... Owing to what I believe you humans call Newtonian physics, sent him flying backwards towards you, who elegantly ducked aside, out of the door and down the corridor beyond. You looked to me. Tea, then? As we caught up with the doctor, my stomach was doing somersaults of its own, I took in the ship. The doctor was right. Primitive. Essentially, a cylindrical tin can along whose central corridor were lined a series of small rooms, We passed one with a bunk, another with scientific analysis equipment, another with loose-leaved schematics of what appeared to be a giant balloon floating in midair. And the whole place was lived in. Drawings, blankets, empty tins of beans floating in midair. You explained that we were aboard the Reverence, a ship bound for Venus, the first ship bound for Venus, or at least the first man trip. A 415-day round trip in total, including two months in the atmosphere of Venus. 
The schematics we'd seen were for a structure, not unlike a blimp, that would allow the reverence to float in what you lovingly called Venus's localised Goldilocks zone, where the temperature and pressure were relatively harmless. You even said you might get to have a walk outside, weather conditions permitting. Where are the other crew members? I asked, hoping the doctor hadn't bumped into any of them and caused a diplomatic incident. There isn't anybody else, you replied. It's just me. And with that, the doctor floated out of the cockpit. A huge metal door hung open, the handle of which he was clinging to. It was refreshing, comforting, and more than a little amusing to see he was having as much trouble as me with the lack of gravity. The sweat on his brow was gathering into an impressive droplet that I reminded myself to avoid as we passed through. Siobhan, the doctor cried. I've been having a terrible argument with an Irishman. You sighed. Oh, that'll be da. As we floated into the cramped confines of the cockpit, I almost expected to see an old man hunkered over the controls, but the reality was far stranger. The room was empty, but a thick, hearty voice emanated from the speakers. Who's he, Siobhan? It spat. Who's this lad wandering around the ship? You climbed into the pilot's seat. Nobody, da, just... You looked at us. Are you aliens? No, the doctor replied. Well, yes, technically, but nobody's an alien to themselves. With that, your father started waxing lyrical about his personal opinions on alien life, until you finally roared over him, Company! Neutral setting! Your father's voice stopped, and was replaced by a cool, calming tone far different from what had come before. The doctor and I shared a look of confusion, which you caught in the reflection of a titanium panel. You explained that in the run-up to the Venus mission, a dust cloud had floated into the flight path, one that would render regular communication with the ship impossible. A technology consortium had offered the services of their artificial intelligence system, known as Company. Apart from its neutral setting, general day-to-day voice-responsive interactions, Company could be programmed with five additional personalities. The man with strong opinions on aliens was your father, Mikey. As if showing off, Company rotated through the other voices in turn. Your husband, Jim, British, it seemed, all softly spoken stutter. Your best friend, Gina, a peal of throaty laughter emanated from the speakers. Your boss, Ashraf, no nonsense, insisting that we not distract Siobhan from her mission. And then, with a high-pitched giggle, your daughter, Nicole. Six years old and covered in bruises, you said proudly. Company, you explained, was designed to combat the psychological effects of extended isolation. Your father muttered, for all the thanks we get. Don't worry, you said. If he gets a bit uppity, there's a kill switch. Deletes the whole program. Reverts to manual control of the computer systems. Isn't that right, Da? Your father mumbled something under his breath. I was about to ask why they hadn't sent a full crew, but you beat me to it. The dust cloud meant the mission was nearly cancelled. Incredibly dangerous, doomed to failure and all that malarkey. But I insisted. The wait for another launch window was too long. And right now, Earth could use a win. It's... it's a mess back there. And look at me now. 
nearly at Venus and still intact. The missions are complete so You were cut off by being slammed into the wall. We quickly followed suit. It seemed the ship had ground to a halt, something which shouldn't be possible in the middle of an empty patch of space. While you dragged yourself to the control console and companies started spouting analysis of our current position, occasionally peppering it with Gina's stories of a drunken night out in Napa, whatever that is, the doctor was instead staring out of the window. He fished a crayon from somewhere in the depths of his coat and scrawled a white circle on the window, then oriented me into his position so I could see what he was seeing. No stars... I whispered. You glanced up from the console to tell us that we hadn't ground to a halt, but rather had had a quite severe change of velocity. We were on a completely different trajectory. The path seemed elliptical, almost like an orbit, and you couldn't seem to change course. The engines weren't strong enough to pull us out of it. You asked if we minded vacating the cramped room while you analysed the situation, but instead the doctor ushered you over to the window. Mushering is very easy in zero gravity, it turns out, to see what we'd seen. A patch of empty space. No stars. Meaning that something there was blocking our view of space. Something that didn't want to be seen. You looked at us with understandable suspicion. It seemed awfully coincidental that we'd landed on your ship minutes before it went into freefall. Not coincidental? the doctor muttered, not coincidental at all. The TARDIS! And with that, the doctor stormed down the corridor, if you can storm in zero gravity, with you in pursuit, brushing past me as you exited. While the doctor explained to you the intricacies of the TARDIS, the term hot rod definitely made an appearance. I looked again at that empty patch of space. What was there? What did it want? I pushed off, floating for the cockpit door, when a small voice crept out of the speakers. Your daughter. I had to remind myself that it wasn't real, that it was just a computer simulation. Be careful, it whispered. Why? I said. I'm worried about Mummy. Then the doctor roared for me and I twirled down the corridor. I was starting to get the hang of this. Back into the room with the TARDIS now floating at a 45 degree angle. I noticed for the first time that this room must have backed onto the Reverence's fuel source. Obviously it would be kept as separate as possible, but there were still warning signs posted liberally. About flammability, about leaks. Some of them had hand-drawn addenda where you'd given your own opinions on the matter, or drawn a minor sketch of the Reverence in flames. It was true of the whole ship, I realised. Lived in, hand-drawn, an extension of your psyche. The doctor was explaining to you about the distress call and repeating the message we'd received. Engines down, drifting off course, crew not to be trusted. Then how we'd aimed for 2155, run into some engine trouble and ended up a century earlier. Earlier? Don't you see? We did not see. The doctor explained that whatever had affected the crew of the Ventici 9 had been so powerful that the TARDIS couldn't land near it in 2155. So it had sent us a century earlier in the timeline, to before the point that the whatever it was had got so strong, to stop it, or maybe help it. 
It was hard to tell when it came to empty space patches with a taste for backseat driving. But that still didn't answer the question of why the TARDIS had locked us out. Like it was afraid of something getting in. And what about the end of the message? Crew not to be trusted? You asked. I thought of company's warning. The doctor asked about the path we'd been shunted onto. If it was an orbit or a spiral. You asked if it made a difference. A spiral, the doctor said, is dragging you in. With that, you called on company, the solemn tones of Ashraf responded, to provide you with analysis of our trajectory. You headed for the navigation room, the one halfway down the corridor with all the schematics. There was a whiteboard, apparently. The doctor looked at me. You're worried about her, he said. He explained that he'd been monitoring your responses. On the surface, everything seemed normal, but it was clear you were struggling to appear normal, present, human. Artificial company is not the same as real physical contact. I thought again of how you'd brushed past me on the way out of the cockpit. You hadn't touched anyone in nearly a year. The presence of real, breathing flesh-and-blood people must have been magnetic. The doctor believed that whatever had affected the Ventici 9 hadn't just been physical. That message had been sent by someone at risk from their fellow crew members. Or, perhaps even more dangerous, someone who believed they were at risk. Isolation does strange things to the human mind. It wouldn't take much to light the match. You called from down the corridor and we joined you. You were upside down now, and I had to reorient myself to see what you'd been scrawling on the giant whiteboard. It was just as the doctor predicted. A spiral. Whatever had shunted us off course had managed to adjust our trajectory enough to pull us into its orbit, but its continued pull, gravitational or otherwise, meant that we were coming closer and closer. Judging by your calculations, at our current speed... Your husband, Jim, stuttered from all around us. Uh, you, 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 you'll be dead within the, 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 the next twenty minutes. Please, Siobhan, please, find a way to end this. Please, if you don't... But you waved your hand and said, Company! Neutral setting! The three of us floated there in silence. I thought of how far I'd gone in time and space, how much I'd seen, how many times I'd almost died. But I'd never felt this vulnerable. This tin can with its tin walls was all that separated us from the vacuum of space, and there was no one to help us for hundreds of millions of miles. And then it struck me. The Crave Symposium. Reconstituted Freud, the id, the ego, the superego, independent thought with walls between them. Siobhan, I said, you told us that the engines weren't strong enough to pull us out of this orbit. You nodded. But do you actually know the engines fired? Is it possible that the computer took your instruction to move the ship, but that instruction didn't actually make it to the engines? A few minutes later, I was in the cockpit with you over the controls. The doctor, meanwhile, was back with the TARDIS and next to the fuel reserves. From the porthole, he'd be able to see if the engines were actually following your instructions. 
You could control proceedings from anywhere in the ship, but you preferred to actually be in the cockpit. It reminded you of being a child, you said. Your father, Mikey, had joined the RAF shortly after moving to Manchester. And I was a better pilot than any of those Brits, Company growled. You opened a drawer beneath the controls and pulled out a book, passing it to me. It was a well-thumbed and worn-out instruction manual for the Supermarine Spitfire. You explained that your father had once snuck you into the Air Force Museum in Cosford at night, paid off one of his old friends, a security guard, picked you up and put you right in the cockpit of an old Spitfire. You were the same age as Nicole is now. From that moment in that cockpit to this moment in this one, your dad had supported you, or shouted at you, or challenged you to heated Christmas morning battles in flight simulation games. I knew you could be the best. You just had to... What's the word fancy people use? Apply yourself, said Mikey. Or not Mikey. Company. Again, I had to remind myself. You said you were happy with the trajectory of the blast you were planning. You didn't want to use any more fuel than necessary. You still had a return journey to Venus to worry about. You whispered to yourself, Five. Four. And then Nicole's childish voice, Three. Two. One. Blast off! You fired the engines. Seconds passed. Nothing. The doctor's crayon from earlier floated by in front of me. If we were changing course, then it was barely perceptible. You sighed and began to suggest we try again, though I could tell from your tone that your heart wasn't in it. You seemed somehow deflated. When suddenly there was a shudder and the sound of an explosion from the back of the ship, where the doctor was. I was out of the cockpit before you could even move. As I propelled myself down the corridor, like flying or plummeting, depending on how you look at it, I saw the strangest thing come floating by. It was a flame, divorced from anything else, unattached to anything else, hovering like a dewdrop. It must have been a sliver of fuel that had caught in the explosion. It was beautiful, and entirely beside the point. I crashed into the doorframe of what I'd come to think of as the engine room with a painful thud, spinning as I went, and came face to face with the doctor, floating in mid-air and barely conscious. A black mark stretched against the far wall in the back corner of the now upside-down TARDIS, detailing the path of the fire. The warning sign that you'd scrawled on was now singed, pieces of melted plastic drifting into the air. The doctor's coat was singed too, and I noticed with a jolt, on fire. I looked around for water, realising foolishly that of course there wouldn't be loose water on a ship like this, but there was a fire extinguisher. I unlatched it from its moorings, pulled the pin and aimed at the doctor. As the foam poured from the nozzle and doused the fire, I pictured the scene from above. The doctor, on fire and soon not to be, floating in front of me and me being propelled backwards by the counterforce of the fire extinguisher. The oddest things happened travelling with the Doctor. The fire died and I let go of the extinguisher, just as you crawled into the doorway. What did you do? You seethed. You seemed different. The Doctor coughed and looked to you, 
He told you that when the engines hadn't worked, and they hadn't, he'd try to see if he could adjust them himself from down here. That's when a sliver of fuel had seeped from the stores and caught. You grabbed the fire extinguisher. As you did, I noticed that your eyes had taken on a wild, almost desperate look. The doctor had crossed a line. He'd messed with your ship. The doctor explained to you that the fire wasn't an accident. He was nowhere near successful in his attempts to work on the engine, and what he'd done wasn't anywhere near the fuel. It had been a deliberate act to try and kill him. The thought flickered through my mind, but you were ahead of me and you were smiling. Thank you, company. Little Nicole echoed back. You're welcome, mummy. You explain that company was designed to protect the ship and her crew under any and all circumstances, and since leaving Earth it had taken more liberties with that protocol. And you'd been happy to let it. I wondered what poison it had been pouring in your ears and for how long. The doctor tried to approach you, tried to reason with you. But you were now wielding the fire extinguisher. You were further gone than either of us had realised. Still, the doctor tried to reason with you. Siobhan, you don't understand, he said. The distress call we received was about a crew suffering from paranoia. This thing is playing with your head, infecting the computer and using it to render you helpless while it sucks you into its spiral and out of existence. That's why the TARDIS locked us out. To stop the spiral from infecting our systems. Please, Siobhan, you don't want to die here. You hung in the air, the fire extinguisher clasped desperately in your hands. I began to wonder about the veracity of what the doctor had just said. And then... With a practiced flick of your leg, you kicked off and down the corridor at lightning speed. The doctor tried to follow, but you threw the fire extinguisher over your shoulder and it slammed into him. Then we heard the door of the cockpit click shut. And lock. The doctor roared in frustration. Company! I'd like to speak to you! Ashraf, the flat-voiced academic, responded. Yes, doctor? You do not want to do this. You do not want to get on the wrong side of a time, Lord. Ashraf wasn't the type to laugh, but still it was somewhere in his voice. Is that right, Doctor? This is an interesting concept, this want. A girl gets into a cockpit and wants to fly. A girl gets into a prestigious university and wants to be top of her class. A girl gets a job at the European Space Agency... That's where we met, six years ago. And suddenly she wants to fly again. The girl gets what she wants. But what happens, Doctor, when the girl wants to die? Am I supposed to deny her what she wants? Especially... Company's voice shifted to Nicole. When I'm so hungry... The doctor looked to the fuel lines in a panic, but I told him to ignore the fuel, the engine, the mechanical solution. This was about you. You were the only one who knew how to shut down company, and you had to choose to do it. I was ahead of him this time, floating down the corridor, past that tube of peanut butter, a drawing of a monster signed by Nicole, a hastily sketched poster featuring two arrows labelled up and down. It had come loose from the wall. I reached the cockpit to a sound that was barely audible through the metal door. 
he was sobbing. Company's voice was all around us, all talking to you. Jim explaining that it had been a relief when you'd signed up for the mission, that things hadn't been right in the marriage for a long time and you knew this. Things would probably end anyway. This would be cleaner. You'd be a hero, he'd be a widower. And Nicole? Nicole was young. It shifted to Nicole's voice again. I'll forget you. I banged on the door, roaring to be heard over company. Siobhan, listen to me! They're not real. They're not your family. They're not your friends. They're not even company anymore. They're this creature. The doctor joined me as I heard you say you wanted to speak to your father. Mikey's gruff tones came in through the speakers. Siobhan, don't worry. It's all right. I always told you. It's about flying high. It's about being good enough. And if you're not good enough, that's okay. Some people fly, and some people fall. It doesn't mean you're not. But then company was cut off, and I looked to the doctor. He was holding a set of torn cables in one hand, and some form of hastily assembled electrical contraption in the other. He smiled. I can't stop company controlling this ship, but I can plug out the speakers. And I think I found a way to use this thing. Can we call it the spiral? Yes, let's call it the spiral. Use this thing's control of the ship against it. But only if we can get Siobhan to shut down company, because in about three minutes we're about to be dinner. The doctor banged on the door and you screamed at him to go away. Many had done the same before. None had been successful. The doctor cleared his throat. This might be the most important conversation he'd ever have. Or maybe just the last. And then he opened his mouth. But it wasn't his voice I heard. It was my own. I spoke to you, because something had occurred to me. Siobhan, it's me, Nyssa. I know... I know you don't know me. Not like you know Jim, or Ashraf, or Gina, or your dad, or Nicole. I just... I don't know if you're about to die, and I don't know if I'm about to die, but I wanted to ask you to picture something. You see, I lost my father a long time ago. I don't have him around. I don't even have a computer that speaks like him. I just have my memories. Some of them are good. Some of them are great, actually. Some of them aren't. I just want you to picture something. I want you to think of that night when your dad snuck you into that museum and into the cockpit of the Spitfire. I want you to think of all the controls, the buttons and bells and battle scars. All that technology, all that beauty, all that flight laid out in front of you. Now I want you to look up. Do it now, look up. And I want you to see your father looking down at you. I want you to look at that man then. Not a computer now, but that man then. Your father, your real father. And I want you to answer one question. I breathed in. I saw something float by my face. Later I would realise it was one of my own tears. Siobhan, look at your father and answer me this. Is this a man who wants you to die? There was a vacuum like open space. 
And then, with a click, the cockpit door opened. You were hovering above the control panels with the book in your hand, the Spitfire manual. You raised your voice to a volume that spoke power, like an army major or a valedictorian, or a woman who's awoken from a fog. You said, The control lever for the de Havilland 20 degrees or Rotol 35 degrees constant speed air screw is on the throttle quadrant. Initially, I didn't know what you meant. But then the lights flickered and you finally caught my eye. That sentence from the Spitfire manual was the kill switch for company. You'd done it. You'd deleted the program. You were just you. The doctor, not one to let us rest on our laurels, pushed past us both and jammed the electrical creation he'd assembled into the heart of the controls. The ship began to shake and judder, and I looked to the space visible through the cockpit glass. It was entirely black. We were so close to the spiral that it had blocked out everything. And then it wasn't so dark. It started to blanch, to flicker with arcs of what could be electricity. A biology began to show itself in an electrical feedback that I assume the doctor was responsible for. A spiderweb of nerve connections, so thin at times to be almost gaseous. The light became brighter brighter to a blinding crescendo and then the spiral was gone I could see the stars again and you were smiling the doctor was terribly impressed with himself first and foremost we'd received a distress call from 2155 and we'd solved the problem a century in advance when the crew of Ventici 9 passed through this region of space in a hundred years they wouldn't encounter any problems no creature. Just the knowledge that they were following in the cosmic footprints of Siobhan Mayhew. He was also impressed with me, not that he'd say. And I was impressed with you. Company was gone, for good. You'd be flying manual for the rest of the trip. We asked if you'd prefer to join us in the now unlocked TARDIS, a safe way home. But you said you'd started this journey and you were going to complete it. Plus, Ashraf would kill you if you abandoned ship. I asked if you were going to be okay. And you nodded and you smiled. And you snapped some peanut butter from the air to snack on. The silence sounds pretty good right now, you said. And I had to agree. Still, there are such things as safety precautions. A human voice can be helpful. So I asked you if I could sit in the cockpit for a little while. The doctor and I were in no rush to resume our argument about the relative merits of symposia and inflatable housing. I sat in the cockpit. I'm sitting in the cockpit. A cockpit that I've no doubt will someday end up in a museum where little girls can visit it. And I'm making this recording. For you, Siobhan. Sometimes it can be helpful to hear our stories told back to us. Sometimes it's just nice to hear the sound of a human voice. So if you get a bit lonely, or a bit bored, or if you're having trouble sleeping, I've been told that my academic speaking voice can have something of a soporific quality. Know that there are people out there who care for you, who love you, who are deeply invested in your being alive, and who want stories when you get back. Know that you are someone else's spitfire.
It can be a hard thing hanging on to your sanity. When you're on your own. When you're millions of miles from home. When you're in zero gravity. Everything becomes unmoored. So I suppose what I'm trying to say is, listen carefully. I know it might seem like you're losing your grip sometimes, but listen carefully. I'm about to tell you a story. <laughs> 